0: number of years ago, an American actress was asked if she was embarrassed by the fact that she had been married seven times. And she answered, why should I be embarrassed about all my marriages? All my friends are running around having dozens of affairs. At least I marry my affairs. Now, if you're old enough to know who that is, there were actually eight marriages, but why not? two of them were to the same person. And you know, in John chapter 4, we encounter a woman much like this actress in the, of the 20th century. Gone through marriage after marriage of a, in a fruitful or fruitless search for Love. And this story about a culture 2,000 years ago, which is a foreign culture to us, is a story that's so relative to the world in which we live in today. She could easily be your next-door neighbor. She could easily be the woman who works as a receptionist in your office. She could easily be a woman in your Bible study sitting in the chair next to you this morning, or even you. She could be a relative or an old college roommate, whatever. I don't know, but this is a story that we can relate to in the 21st century. In terms of her lifestyle and her spiritual needs uh, and her emotional pain, this woman in John 4 is as contemporary and as relevant as any American woman today, or any American today, she's lost. She's empty. She's searching for love, and her story is so teachable to us today, as is many of the many of these discourses that we see in the Gospel of John. And we see in this particular passage, we deal with the issue of. Racial inequality, the, 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 the issue of prejudice, the issue of the status of women in society, of the decline of moral standards, loneliness, hunger for love, hunger for acceptance, and the list could go on and on and on. So let's read this story before we get any further. Uh, beginning with uh, verse 7 of John 4. <coughs> you would have asked, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. By the way, I don't think that's a petition to be saved. I think she's being sarcastic. Well, give me this water. so I won't be thirsty anymore. Jesus said to her, go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. The Word of God for the people of God. If you're a first-time guest here today, um, I'd like for you to get caught up a little bit. We did the first seven verses of this chapter last week. This is part two of this message, and we won't complete it today. Pastor Greg will pick up on the worship part next week. You see, if you are a first-time guest, we preach through books of the Bible. And so it's important that you know what connects to what is being said today. And so I'll give you a little bit of overview. Or it could be you missed last week because you're a slacker. You didn't set your clocks ahead. <laughs> and you showed up after the message. Or you thought, you know what, Not setting, forgetting to set my clock ahead would be a great excuse to stay in bed. But I know we have nobody like that here today. Last week we saw the departure there in verse 1, Jesus having to leave Judea. Then we saw the location of where he was going, and then we started on this encounter with this woman. So let me just give you a brief overview of the departure. Jesus has already moved from um, uh, from Jerusalem outside, uh, in verse 22 of the previous chapter, chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So he leaves Jerusalem and they go out into the Judean countryside. We also know from verse 36 of chapter 3 that Jesus is attracting. Bigger crowds than John the Baptist. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, all are going to him. Pastor Greg preached that message where John's saying, He must increase and I must decrease. And that was happening. Plus, these retreats, and they're about, in the Gospels, there are about eight of them where Jesus. Retreats he goes gets to get away from the Pharisees because he knew god 's plan god 's timing for his life, he knew how it was going to go and and so it was important that he stay away from the pharisees when when those religious people got upset and then in verse two, although Jesus himself did not baptize john John the evangelist is making a very clear distinction between. Uh, John the Baptist and Jesus, as far as baptism is concerned. John baptized in water. Jesus did not. In fact, Jesus' water baptism was implemented by his disciples. Think about that. The reason we gave last week that Jesus didn't baptize, or at least one of the reasons, was that what if you had been baptized by Jesus? You could claim to be more spiritual. But then what if Judas had baptized you? Quite possibly he did. And so this teaching is that it doesn't matter who does the baptizing. It really doesn't. But John had said earlier that Jesus' baptism was of far greater significance. In chapter 1, verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend... And remain. This is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That baptism is far more significant. So he flees. I we we see the location. Ben, you got the map up up there, and I I I showed you how he could have taken the route, which was more common if you wanted to stay out of Samaria. You see those dotted lines? Maybe you don't. Um, there really weren't borders between Judea and Samaria and Galilee necessarily. There was overlap there. Jesus could have gone east of the Jordan River straight up to Sethopolis there, which is Bet-Shane, what we call Bet-Shane now. But instead, he went up to the peak of the mountains and he took the mountain ridge right up to Sychar. John tells us that he had to pass through Samaria. For us, we would say, well, no, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. Especially considering the principles by which Orthodox Jews lived by, and that was, it would be unclean for them to pass through Samaria where those, that mixed-race group of people live. But Jesus chose that way, and he chose that way because he had a divine appointment with this woman in Sychar. The Samaritans were a mixed race of people um, back in uh, 720, 722, 727, sometime back then, B.C. Um, the Assyrians came uh, and took into captivity uh, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom and uh, and yet left some. Jews. There was a remnant that were left there. Then the Assyrians sent their own people to repopulate the area. They intermarried with the Jews, and because so they became a mixed race of people, and pure Jews were very prejudiced toward them. They had established their own temple there on Mount Gerizim, and they just fanned the flames of prejudice. But Jesus was on this divinely appointed schedule. It was necessary that he go through Samaria. And he gets there in Sychar. It's not Samaria. Samaria was a town, but it was also a region. So he's going to the region of Samaria, the town near Sychar. And he gets there in verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, Jesus was tired and thirsty. The one who John said in chapter one, "And the Word was God," the one who created the universe, who flung the stars and the planets and the space, had to sit down because he was tired, thirsty was weary and thirsty in order that he might be prepared to exercise some sympathy and compassion toward us. He took on himself our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Weary, hungry, thirsty. And then we started... As he encountered this woman there, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The longest recorded conversation Jesus has with a woman in the New Testament. Jesus was no respecter of persons. He counseled a moral Jewish leader there in chapter 3. And now he had witness to an immoral Samaritan woman. And it was a great contrast between those two. It's no accident that John put these two discourses side by side here at the beginning of his gospel. Important, sophisticated Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, and this lowly Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She... Didn't have any religious party. He was a politician. She didn't have any status at all. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. We don't even know her name. He was a man. She was a woman. That was bad enough. He came at night to protect his reputation. She probably came at noon because of her bad reputation. Nicodemus came seeking Jesus, seeking some answers. Jesus comes seeking the Samaritan woman. The one thing that this woman, Nicodemus, had in common is the only thing that mattered. Empty lost, bound for an eternity in hell, unless God intervenes in their lives. And in this counter, we'll see the subject of providence. We'll see the subject of living water. We'll see the subject of sin. Next week, we'll see the subject of worship. First, the subject of providence. It's midday. Um, uh, At sunset, usually the women would commonly together come, and women like to do things together, like even go to the bathroom. So they commonly come to draw water together. Like, Like in large cities, in the inner city years ago, women would gather at the laundromat in the inner city. It was the time for them to get together and chatter. There was no Instagram or Facebook or anything like that for them, so they had to go somewhere. They actually had to make an effort. It was their job. It was probably her intention to avoid the disapproval of those women who would come at sunset, and so she had to come in the hot part of the day. There's a lot of rich theology here in this conversation Jesus has. With this woman last week, we talked about the prevenient grace of, of Jesus sitting there and God wooing this woman, God bringing this, drawing this woman to himself. And even in the living water, we'll look at soon, we'll see perseverance of the, of the saints because it never fails. And on and on and on we could go. And we think these stories about these people. It's not in primarily about an evangelistic encounter with a woman at the well. Shared with you before, the John is teaching us primarily what he tells us in chapter 20. If I could find chapter 20. very last verse of John 20. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All these things are written because of that. Now, there is an evangelistic theme here, how Jesus speaks to her. And you'll see that as we go. That's not John's primary purpose. He's the Savior of the world. We're going to recognize that again. So his disciples go and buy food. And I like to think about these things during the week, um, which are really meaningless. But I wonder if... When she was coming from town to the well, if she passed by the disciples going to town, That' would have been interesting if they had a conversation, or they, typically Jews wouldn't speak to women and certainly not Samaritan women, but what if they passed what if they crossed paths? Race didn't matter to Jesus. Apparently, it didn't matter to the disciples either because they were going into town to get some food. And that's another thing I thought of. What what did those Samaritans think that um, when this group of Jewish men were walking into town? What did they think? Think about that for a minute. Why they went to buy food. I, I, they were hungry, but that's not the main reason they went to buy food. It's because Jesus had an appointment with this woman and they didn't. And with his disciples in the city to buy food, he did just the most surprising thing. He spoke. Not only, not just to a woman, but a Samaritan woman. He'd never met there in Samaria. She's shocked to hear a Jewish man speak to her, ask for a drink of water. And the normal prejudices of those those days just prohibited any public conversation between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, especially between strangers. A Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty than to violate these particular... Principles. In fact, in public, a Jewish man was not even supposed to speak to his wife. She had all these things at her disadvantage. She was a Samaritan, guilty of sexual immorality, and she was a woman. We've already talked about how Jews felt about the Samaritans, but we're not left in doubt with how the Pharisees would have dealt with such a woman. This is a long passage of Scripture, but I think it's important for you to see the picture of what it means, how the Pharisees viewed women. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 39. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house And we shouldn't be surprised at Jesus' response to all that in the next ten verses. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to a woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the contrast. That's how the Pharisees looked at a Samaritan woman. That's how Jesus looked at the Samaritan woman. so intense was their dislike the Samaritans, that the Pharisees prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. Rabbinical teaching said, it is better to burn the law than give it to a woman. And you know, it's interesting. Politics in America want to blame the Bible and Christians for demeaning women as a lower class of people when Jesus showed us exactly the very opposite of that and he didn't ask for a drink because he couldn't get it any other way it was in in God's plan he asked her for a drink She could buy that since, you know, in human terms, she said, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a cup. You don't have a rope to let the bucket down. How can you get a drink? You don't have anything. And let me mention this to you also. We've seen John the Baptist, these first four chapters, declare Jesus was the Messiah. We've seen John, the writer of this gospel, John the evangelist, declare that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 26, I just read for you. I who speak to you am He. The first time Jesus declares Himself the Messiah. And I mentioned that because it's so difficult for us humans to grasp the divine. Jesus said He was weary, but He was the Creator. He was thirsty, but he's the Creator. We, 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 it's so difficult for us to grasp the human Jesus and the divine Jesus. Listen, he just recently he turned water into wine. Don't you think he could have come up with a drink of water? There was a reason for that, and the reason is you notice in Scripture nowhere did Jesus perform a miracle to where he benefited himself. Read through all the Gospels. Never did Jesus perform a miracle where he benefited himself from the miracle. For the same reasons, he sent the disciples to buy food. In a couple chapters, in chapter 6, he's going to feed 5,000 people Just a small amount of food. He could have said, Nathaniel, you know that last pack of nabs you've got in your bag? Give me that. We'll have a feast. He never benefited from one of his own miracles. Tasker, a British theologian in the early 20th century said, The Samaritan woman is a timeless figure. Not only a typical Samaritan, but a typical human being. As she converses with Jesus, it becomes clear that, like most men and women, she is almost exclusively concerned with the provision of what will satisfy her physical needs, particularly thirst-quenching water, which can often be obtained only by the expenditure of much time and energy. And so he gets her attention. Speaking to a woman, a Jew speaking to a woman, a Jewish rabbi speaking to a woman is shocking in many ways. Paul tells us in Galatians three what this was like for Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Hallelujah. Charles Wesley wrote about that as well. Love like death hath all destroyed, rendered all distinctions void. Names and sex and parties fall. Thou, O Christ, art all in all. So God's providence gets her attention. Then he whets her appetite with the subject of living water. The request of Jesus just stuns her. There in verse 10. If you knew... Give me, give me a drink, he's asked. And then he says, If you knew the gift of God, all that animosity, political, ethnic, religious animosity. She's confused about all of this. He'd be willing to talk to her. John reminds us Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And I suspect the feeling was mutual. So the Lord's answer is hard for her to grasp, far from what she expected him to say. He doesn't even explain how he could get a cup of water. In fact, we don't even know that she, she may have been so stunned and shocked he never got his water. We don't, it doesn't say. Instead, he shows her her need for water. And that water is vastly superior to the water she's drawn out of that well. He calls it living water. He says in that verse, if you knew the gift of God. She doesn't know the gift of God. And most likely Jesus is talking about the well from which the living water comes from. And we already know what the gift of God is, because John told us in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He, the gift. And who it is that asks you for a drink? She doesn't know His identity. Just a stranger. Not the divine Son of God, you would have asked Him. She does not know that living water is available for the asking. You don't have to do anything to get it. She's ignorant of the fact that that that, 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 that the gift of, that salvation is free. And it could it could have seemed to her that Jesus is talking. There's a nearby spring because the, the living water meant something to them back then in that dry place. Living water was water that from a spring they called it living water when it would when it would bubble up from the ground, or or if it was a stream, if it was running water, that was living water. Back in those days, not a well or a cistern where the water would be stagnant. That teaching is not New Testament teaching. It it comes from the Old Testament. In a particularly dry part of the world, it's so important that they have an understanding of this. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Living water. The biblical image of living water is God's grace, new life. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus has to offer, that's living water. And here he's offering her the satisfying eternal life that only he can provide. The woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she confronts him with her own series of questions and comments, and she observes he's not able to get any water out of the well. He doesn't have the necessary means to get a drink of water uh, for himself. So where can you get this living water, she asks. Are you greater than Jacob? The Samaritans trace their, as the Jews, trace their ancestry back to Jacob. You see as they progress in this conversation, you see that she's becoming... Aware, although in a worldly sense, that this might there might be more to this. And William Hendrickson <coughs> says that um, though this question does anticipate a negative answer from Jesus, it reveals that she's beginning to ponder the greatness of the stranger. That she's being re- being made receptive for the gospel. But it appears that she's taking these comments from Jesus more literally than she needs to. She's not seeing it spiritually. She's confused and she's not very interested in the deeper meaning that Jesus is dealing with. And she chooses this remark that is antagonistic at best. Putting Jesus in his place. Are you... You better than our father Jacob? Come on, who are you trying to put him in his place? And, and just like Nicodemus, she just can't think spiritually. What Nicodemus say in verse, verse four of chapter three? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can't think in spiritual terms. Neither of them are you greater. They had accepted the um, Pentateuch. The Samaritans had as the only part, of the Hebrew scriptures that they had accepted. They quite possibly rewrote part of the Pentateuch as well. So, and, and, and so Moses, like Moses, they looked on Jacob as their father, just as the Jews did. And so she started sort of attacks Jesus with this particular. And then he drives home his point. I'm not talking about the water in that well. Drink that water and you're going to be thirsty again. I'm talking about a different kind of water altogether. And she knows what it means to be thirsty. Has to go. She has to go to that well every single day. She has to make that walk and go to that well day after day, after day. And He's saying you don't have to go to the well. In your thirst for life, in your soul, that cannot be filled by this water in this well, I've got something else. It's piped in running water. That's what it is. Indoor plumbing is a wonderful thing and mine goes directly to your soul. And it's hard for us To understand how powerful this picture is to her, because we walk around with our plastic bottles of water. I got water up here. Came out of, just, we can get water whenever we want. But you live in an arid part of the world, like that part of the world, you understand what thirst means. Jacob's well will temporarily quench your thirst. But your problem requires a different kind of water. This water is inferior. But the water I have, you'll never thirst again. Look at the picture physical water. Cannot permanently quench one's thirst. It'll be a recurring experience for everybody. You will be thirsty again. It only satisfies the body, not the soul. Limited in quantity, it will eventually run dry. But living water satisfies one's thirst for all eternity. You will never thirst. Enters into a soul and becomes a source of everlasting spiritual refreshment will become in him a spring of water never run dry welling up to her eternal life jesus shows this woman that there's something of which she is ignorant she doesn't know the gift of god the identity of the one speaking to her she knew these things she'd be asking him for a drink of living water. And he would give it. She doesn't understand what he's saying, but she does understand he's claiming to be somebody important. And to have something that she would want if she only understood what it was. Now listen. After this point in verse fourteen, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He said, Would you want that? And she could say yes. He said, Pray this prayer after me. He could do that. Pray this prayer. Repeat these words and you'll be saved. But it would have been a false conversion. And she would have spent an eternity in hell. It's happened millions and millions of times. False conversions in our evangelism programs. It's possibly even happened to you. You understand how the greatness of God, what Jesus has to offer you, and then somebody says, "Wouldn't you want that?" And you say, "Yeah, I want that." Well, then repeat these words after me. Walk down the aisle, join the church." It would have been a false conversion for one reason only, she hadn't dealt with her sin. The subject of sin. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Well, that's just antagonism. Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. It's getting heated now. She doesn't understand. It's not criticism that she doesn't understand because you wouldn't either. Why wouldn't you understand? Is it a different culture? Is it just a different time? No, she's living in darkness. She's blinded by her sin. At some point, you were all blinded by your sin, and you wouldn't understand either. So now he touches the most sensitive, vulnerable part of her life. Go call your husband. Now, I suspect her first thought is, wait a minute. You want me to walk a mile or so in the heat of the day on the word of a stranger? It's just that you're asking too much. But he had a deeper purpose. And she simply tried to avoid what he wanted to talk about next, her sin. John Piper said, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. have no husband. Another thing that she tries to avoid that Jesus is bringing to her, she tries to avoid the truth, and that's what Jesus is driving home. Yeah, you're right. You failed to mention those five husbands you've had. Oh, by the way, the one you're living with now. This is how we know she's immoral because the Samaritans... Um, believe the Pentateuch. And, and the Pentateuch is all you need to know that the only way that you could get a divorce is because of adultery. So unless her, all five husbands had died, it could have been she killed them, but we don't know that, unless all five husbands have died, they were divorced at, due to Adultery. So she's an immoral, adulterous outcast. One of the reasons she wasn't popular with the women of that town was because she was too popular with the men of that town. And why open this closet? Why bring out this skeleton? Why open this grave? Why tell that secret? It had to be. the wound had to be probed to the bottom and cleansed before it could be healed. We do that. We avoid our sin, don't we? Jesus has a way of penetrating the heart just to the point of nailing us with His truth. And it shows us who we really are. It hurts, doesn't it? How did he know? Well, he's Jesus. He's the creator. He's omniscient. Could be somebody told him about her. It doesn't really matter. It never mattered. He knew she was married five times. She's living with the guy she's not married with. That, that's something to make note of, too. Notice, too, that living together is not marriage. The one you're living with is not your husband. Living together is not marriage. The guy she was living with was not her husband. And, uh, and, and so living together does not constitute marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship, a permanent covenant relationship where a man and a woman have committed together to display the glory of God through their marriage. And one other thing, if anybody ever tells you that religion ought to stick to the business of saving souls and stay out of the ethical or social issues of life, do not believe it. That wasn't Jesus' pattern. How about the Sermon on the Mount? How about the way he encountered this particular woman? In order to make it possible for this woman to receive living water, Jesus spoke about the pitiful, sinful life that she was living, and He had to. She had to face it. She had to see that she was living a pitifully sinful life, and that life was an offense to a holy God. So He confronts her with that life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, It is not enough to tell a man he's a sinner. Rather, we must prove it to him. And this Word will do that. So Jesus starts this process of conviction. Why did He confront her with that? Why did He go through that? Because repentance does not take place until you are aware of what you must repent from. And believing who He is, it's vitally important for her to come to saving faith. It may seem cruel of Jesus, but nobody will ever come to Jesus for salvation until they are first awakened to their own sin. Until a sinner knows he's lost, he will never have a desire to be found. Conviction is of vital importance john six forty four No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day John same chapter verse sixty five This is why I tell you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father ephesians two one you're dead in the trespasses and sins. Do not come to life till you discover why you're dead. J.C. Ryle said, Till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their soul. Till a sinner sees himself as God sees him, he will continue careless and unmoved. Ryle also says, Never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as a Savior until he discovers that he himself is a lost and ruined sinner. Ignorance of sin is invariably attended by neglect of Christ. And Jesus' information was accurate. And she eventually sees it. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. She discovers that He knows how simple she really is and He's talking to her anyway. Even the people in her own village don't do that. And you notice He hasn't condemned her. Well, John three seventeen. Why didn't he condemn her? Because she's condemned already. He actually accepts her. So that's that part of the encounter. It's a subject of worship that's coming up. And throughout this time with Jesus, you can see her thinking about Jesus changes through this process. And in verse nine, she, he's just a Jew. Verse 12, quite possibly he's greater than Jacob. In verse 19, she calls him a prophet. verse 29, she begins to question if he's the Messiah. And in verse 42, quite possibly she agrees with the rest of the town people that he's the Savior of the world. See that progress? He taught me, He told me everything I'd done. He received me in love even though He knew the sinner I am, I was. You see, that first conversation concerning salvation that's recorded in the Gospel of John with Nicodemus, a Jewish theology professor... That's one thing. But then there's this second discourse with a person, at the very opposite end of the social and religious spectrum, a Samaritan woman. And she would not have expected much love or intellectual attention or any type of attention from a rabbi, especially this one. Instead, she got a conversation. That went to the very bottom of her life. And it was the means of transforming her life. And it's been that way ever since. The Christian church, you'll find everyone in the church from one end of the social spectrum to the other, from one end of the intellectual spectrum to the other, from one end of the spectrum of power to the lowest end. You'll find them in the church. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone. You know, one of the most terrible things, if you've read anything about this, we'd see it in the life of Jesus, but other people were crucified, was the raging thirst that came with crucifixion. Jesus experienced that on the cross. You know, the pain and suffering of the cross, much of it, he kept to himself, did not really express it out of his mouth. But that raging thirst, he did express out of his mouth. I thirst as he hung there on the cross. That kind of thirst is a perfect symbol for the human condition. Just as living water is a perfect symbol for salvation, we suffer from a violent thirst. And the world out there is trying to quench that thirst. They're thirsty for love. And the world is thirsty for happiness. And the world is thirsty for security. And the world is thirsty for acceptance. And the world is... Thirsty for goodness and for fulfillment and for purpose in life. The world is thirsty for forgiveness. The world is thirsty for eternity. The world is thirsty for all that mankind was made for since we were made in the image of God. We don't know it. We seldom think in those sorts of terms. But that's what we're thirsty for. And we seek to quench the thirst of our life going to all the wrong wells. And the water that we drink from those wells is nasty and poisonous. But today, today you can drink from the river of life If you were to only repent and believe. For Jesus is your only hope. There's nothing else. There's no one else. Consider the words of Isaiah again 55, verse 1 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. There's a wonderful hymn we used to sing years ago. Horatius Bonar hymn. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived. And now I live in Him. And that can be your story today, too. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for Your Word. For the privilege to know Your Word. For the truth of Your Word. We pray, Father, that You might empower us with Your Word. Later, as we go from this place, Lord, but our hearts might be changed because of Your Word. Father, some of us here today are thirsty for living water. We pray that You might give it, that You might provide it, that You might use it for Your glory.